One millionth order. Millionth order. There goes our first big order. 44, 45, 46. How many of these did they order? Oh, that's hot. You know, we could sell these. Nah. We don't bake. Opportunity. What we deliver by delivering. That is awesome. Let's give it up for our FedEx employee right here. Scott, he just delivered this today for us. We appreciate that. I love that commercial. It's a really cool commercial, and it really helps you realize that we have this goal about life that we want, this success that we want, but we have to decide whether or not we're people who bake. We have to decide if we're going to get our hands involved with what God has given us. And as we've been talking about the uprising of Christ, we started it at Easter about his rising from the dead, but it was to empower us to see the kingdom of God become a reality in us. But it's going to require that we bake, that we take the gift of God in our life that has been delivered to us through Jesus, and then we begin to work it into our life, and we begin to see it bake, and we begin to utilize this kingdom of God. Jesus said to his disciples, the kingdom of God does not come with signs to be observed or with visible display, nor will people say, look, here it is, or see, there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you, in your hearts, and among you, surrounding you. So we need to take a hold of this gift that God has given us through his grace. And, and just like in the commercial, there's a point when you have to decide if you're going to bake, that you're going to take the gift of God that is delivered to us, and you're going to begin to use it to work the kingdom of God into your life. Let me just say, as, as today as we're going to be talking about one of the ways that we can begin to bake or begin to work the kingdom of God into our lives, we're going to be talking about creating an uprising in your marriage, an uprising in your finances, an uprising through service. And then today we're going to be talking about an uprising of values in your life. If you have a small or young child with you, today will not probably be the day for them to be with, with us. It would be probably more appropriate if they were in children's church. Because today we're going to be taking a look at this issue of an uprising of values in our own personal lives. The Bible gives us an incredible example. This, this man's name was Daniel. He was a Jewish prince that lived at the time of captivity when Darius was the king of the Medes and the Persians. So he was a Jewish fellow that was uh, royalty in the Jewish family. He was brought into captivity in this time period and he was serving under King Darius, and he was in, uh, in servitude as an advisor to the king of the Medes and Persians. He served with excellence and distinction as his conscience would allow him. Listen to how Daniel's life was going. We're told in Daniel 6.3, and Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. See, it, everything was going great for, for Daniel. He, is, he had distinguished himself, his abilities, his skills. He was able to work in the middle of what was going on in a culture different than his own. 
and yet still distinguish himself and live with the Spirit of God and with his conscience and to serve God, but yet also to be a part of the culture and serve the culture that he was in. And there was a point when there was a coexistence between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the Persians. There was a point where, where he could work and he could do his job and, and he could be at rest knowing every single day as he went to work that he was serving God and that he was serving the kingdom as well. But then there are points in our lives and in the life of Daniel when there is a clash of cultures. When there's a point when we're brought into tension between what is going on in our society or the values of the world around us and what we do as individuals, as those who are pursuing the kingdom of God. This is exactly what happened to this young man. Kingdom leaders of his time wanted to create some tension and conflict between Daniel and Darius. Daniel was doing so well, a lot of people got jealous. Who's this Jewish guy? You know, he's doing really well, and he's going to be our boss one day. So out of jealousy, they wanted to create some tension between him and Darius the king. So they concocted a scheme that would evoke a response from Daniel. They had to get Daniel to do something wrong. And they knew it had to do with something with his God. Let me read you the text. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Now that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty intense description of Daniel. That they look at Daniel's life and they look at how he does finances, they look at how he, he lives in relationships and all that stuff, and it's like, you know, we just can't find anything wrong with this guy. He really is as excellent as Darius thinks he is. So they just concocted and, and came to the conclusion that the only thing we're going to get between him and Darius is if it has something to do with Daniel's God. So we're going to have to somehow get Daniel to violate his moral conscience or his relationship with God in order to get him at odds with Darius. It's the only place that we know that Daniel will drive his foot into the ground and say, listen, I'm sorry, I, I, I cannot obey at this point. So, you know, as I read that, let me ask you the question I asked myself. It, is there something that your culture would do that would come between you and your God? I mean, we live in a culture that's pretty progressive, and we're kind of clicking along here. Um, is there something that our culture would do that you would all of a sudden draw a line in the sand and say, yeah, we're not going any further with this? Or, or let me ask you this. Would, would people around you think that you're such a God follower that, that if they were going to try to get you in trouble... They would say, oh, I know exactly how I can get this guy in trouble. He's, he is such a God follower that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put him at odds with his belief system. And that's how I'm going to catch him. You know, and I, and I wonder, do people know, do my neighbors, the people I live around, do they know that I am so sold out to the kingdom of God that they would know, oh, yeah, if I want to catch Paul in something... I need, to, I need to put him at odds with his God law, his, his concept of God and his relationship with God. So let me just, I think that's a, kind of a good inventory question. 
is that do you have enough God in you that people would know that, yeah, if I really want to take this, this gal off, if I want to take this dude off, I, all I have to do is get in there, with, say something about his God, say something about her faith, say, you know, challenge something about that, and then I know I will get a response from them. So the leaders deployed their plan. In Daniel 6.6, 6, it says, Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition or prayer to any god or man beside you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. And therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. So they devised a plan that they, they observed Daniel's life, and they knew that three times a day he would go up to his rooftop. That's what he did on his lunch break. He would go to his rooftop. He would open the windows of his rooftop villa, and he would face Jerusalem, and he would pray three times a day. And they knew if we're going to catch this guy doing something, we're going we're to put a, a, something between him and his practice of God. And so they, they puffed up the king, and I mean, the king kind of fell for it, and so they signed the law, and, and now whoever prayed to another god other than praying to the king was going to get sent to the lion's den. There are these moments in life when we have to find out if we believe something or we live something. When it is, whether it's just a concept that takes up synaptic functions of our brains, or whether or not it is something that I actually live. It is in the realm of values. It's the realm of how I live my life. For Daniel, this moment was fast approaching him, and it was calling for an uprising in his life. Now, I don't want to under-describe this, is because he's got it made. He's got his Land Rover. He's got his villa. He's got his job. He's got, I mean, he's, his forward mobility is, is seriously on the rise. And to now put something between him and God is not just some religious belief. This is now going to come between everything in his life. His, all of his achievements, his position, his status, uh, his retirement, uh, everything about this is going to be challenged. So what does Daniel do? In verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now his rooftop chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had done previously. I would have been, okay, Daniel, can't you kind of keep this rule with the window shut? You know, can't you just 
Can't you just decide that you're just not going to keep the windows open? Or, or Daniel, how about this? How about let's just reduce it a little bit and um, you do it only once a day and do it when the sun's going down so not everybody sees you and everybody's already home from work and nobody's on the road any longer. You know, and, and so how far do you continue to move on these kinds of value issues? God has been challenging me personally about this. I, I know... Um, Yesterday, I went to Cars and Coffee with my Subaru. If you're on Facebook, you saw that I had my Outback there, and was, it was really cool. If you're a Subaru person, it was, it's, Subarus are cool, and all the WRX guys and Subaru gals were all there looking at this incredible lifted car, and I know you think it's ridiculous, but it's, it was absolutely awesome. And it was kind of like, my car was like the hero of Subarus on this one moment in Mount Pleasant, and it was a really cool moment for me. But... That's just a side note, that, that I detailed my car for three and a half hours. If you want to buy a lifted Subaru, I got one for you right now. I detailed it. The inside was perfect. So just before I go over there, I'm wiping the wheels down and everything, because that's what car people do. We like doing this stuff. It's not a jealousy thing. You get advice from other car owners. You like to show what your work did, and their people appreciate it. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really cool if you're a car person. You see somebody else's Lotus or Lamborghini, and you're like, ah, they're in jacked-up Mustang. It's really a lot of fun. But as I was cleaning out my car, because you lower your window so that they can look into your car, and, and I was cleaning out the Subaru, and it's like, it's got a cool interior. And, and, and I, I took my uh, Costa glasses, and I folded them up, and I put them in the glove compartment, and only one thing remained. And that one thing that remained was an old cross that I hang around my neck, that I hang from the, from the mirror. And I was looking at that, and I said to myself, well, you know, today's Cars and Coffee Day. This is about cars. It's not about Jesus. And God just said to me, you know what? How often are you going to keep moving the cross? Well, Lord, if they, I want them to appreciate my car. It's like, okay, how'd you get that car? I mean, do, don't I provide for you? It's like, yeah, you do. It's like, okay, so let me get this straight. So you want them to appreciate you without, without me being involved. In this conversation, it could be just my conscience and me having this conversation. I understand that. But it, but it became a point, it's like, so you're going to make it so that somebody doesn't get offended in your car, your car. You make the payments for this car that you're going to pull the cross out. And I'm like, God, I am so, I am such a wimp. And I'm like, I'm leaving the daggum cross there. And, and I know you think that's such absolutely ridiculous, but people were sticking my head in the car, and I was like, I was like, no, I am not moving my cross so I don't offend people if they look in my car. That's absolutely ludicrous. And here's Daniel, and he decides that he's not going to move anything when it comes to his relationship with God. And it reminded me that the kingdom of God will never be realized in my life or in your life if we constantly cave into the pressure of our culture. Not always. Daniel was doing fine with the Medes and the Persians. He was doing great up until there was a point when it became an issue between him and his God. Not other people and their God, but between him and his God. Not the behavior of other people and their God, but between him and his God. And the words of Jesus were echoed when he said, do not love the world, know the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. 
And I'm all of a sudden reminded that this Christianity does have a point when there's an uprising about what we believe. And upon being caught praying, Daniel was arrested and he was put in jail. They put him in the lion's den and he was sealed in there for what looked like to be his eventual death. At what point am I willing to be at odds with my society or with my culture? What civil liberties would I be willing to sacrifice? And I'm saying I, but I really mean us. But I know I have to start with me first. Or would my version of Christianity change as my culture forces me to change it? Would I begin to rewrite what the scriptures really meant and were clearly taught? Would I be willing to stand for Christ if it was going to cost me in a business deal? If it was going to cost me money? Would I be willing to stand for Christ if it caused me conflict, if I did the conflict in a Christ-like way at home? Would I be willing to be at odds with my 17-year-old or with my wife or with my neighbor or with maybe a personal habit or a hobby of mine if the values of God came into conflict with what I was experiencing in the world around me? I think I have an expectation that's a lot like you that we believe Christ's kingdom, since it's all about God and it's all about grace and it's all about love, is it, that the kingdom of God is one giant avoidance of conflict. That that's, that's what Christians do. We just avoid conflict. Keeping the peace at all cost, even if that means that truth is that, that element that um, has to be paid in Luke 14, we are told, now a large crowd was going along with Jesus, and he turned to say to them, he had his, you know, success, he had a large crowd, isn't that what preaching's all about? Well, you know, he's, he's got a lot of people following him, and he turns around and he says to them, hey, by the way, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I know some of you are hearing that verse for the first time, and you're like, that's in the Bible? I mean, that's got to be Moses. That's got to be the Apostle Paul. No, that was Jesus. Now, we know from the teachings of Jesus and the rest of Scripture that God values every one of those relationships that he just told us that we could, we could go to war with. But Jesus is challenging us to remove all social barriers to the principles of the kingdom of God in our lives, even if it brings conflict at home, even if it brings conflict between me and my kids, that there's no relationship where we decide that we are going to keep the windows shut and we're going to quietly pray where nobody can see us where we're going to reshape our Christian um, heritage and values because culture or our family or our habits have told us that it's no longer compatible. So let me give you an example of such a conflict that is happening in my life, and it is happening in your life right now. It's called H.R. 5, the Equality Act. Let me just first bust a myth for you. Growing up 
you know, born in the 50s and then growing up in the time period that I was, there was always this incredible statement that people would say whenever you talked about politics and, and religion. They would always say, you cannot legislate morality. Now, let me just tell you, you don't have to go to your first year of law school to understand that all law is morality. I mean, that's the only thing you do with law is you legislate morality. The, the only thing that we're fighting for is whose morality is going to get legislated. So, so if, you know, if you're, you're, you're trying to hide behind that, that statement, and, and, you know, uh, then this is not the issue. Um, the House of Representatives just passed what is called the Equality Act, H.R. 5. It's just, so it's already been passed in the, the House. It's now going to the Senate. On a cursory look, to, um, it is intended to provide employment and housing equality to all Americans, as it should for all Americans, should have equality of housing and work and opportunities, absolutely, period. But it doesn't stop there. It adds to it the issue of gender identity. To the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and to all federal non-discrimination laws. And I know at first you're kind of like, okay, well, everybody is created equal and there should be a sense of fairness. And I, I'm, I'm in total agreement about this. And I also got to tell you right up front, this is not a conversation about homosexuality or being a transgender. This is a conversation about the overreach of government, where it goes further than it's supposed to go. It could be about this idea that Daniel had found himself in, where I can live with this, I can live with this, I can live with this. I'm sorry, you're now going to a point where, where I've got to say something. And so I want you to, to know that this has nothing, this is not a, I'm not making a biblical statement about uh, homosexuality or transgenders. And if you've been coming to Crosstown, you know this is probably one of the most gracious communities of believers that you could ever find. So if you walk out of here and say, well, this church is, is gay bashing or transgender bashing, I, I will fight you. Okay, because you will be lying. Because that's not what's happening here. What we'll be talking about is the overreach of government, not what a person does in their own house, in their own relationships. Every person in America should have equal opportunity to employment, to housing, and uh, to be franchised by the American government. But this bill redefines sex in those federal laws so that it no longer means the biological reality, the scientific reality of being male and female. Instead, sex would be in to include subjective categories as sexual stereotypes, sexual orientation, and gender identity. Now, all of this is stemming out of, and I'm going to give them credit on this, all of this is stemming out of gender dysphoria, which is a real thing. I mean, it is a real thing. It is a condition where a person experiences discomfort and distress because there's a mismatch between their biological sex and how they perceive themselves. 
That's a real thing. That's a real, it's a real condition that needs grace and love and truth and help. And so, I mean, I have absolute mercy for, for anybody that is in that place in their life. But H.R. 5 brings the full force of the federal government against those who believe in the scientific truth that humans come in two types, male and female. So today's presentation, I'm not making solely on theology. I'm making it based upon biological science and what the federal government is doing. The bill, and I have read it, and I encourage you to read it as well, labels Christian beliefs about marriage, sexuality, and family discriminatory. Okay, and the religious act where churches can't, where government can't get involved in what a church says does not apply to the Equality Act of 1964. If this passes the Senate, and regardless of what you think of Donald Trump, if he approves this, the America you know will change. It will all be different. For me to stand up here and say that God created us male and female will now become a hate crime. It is here, folks. 1984, George Orwell, open it up. It is right upon us. And how many of you didn't even know that this, this law was through the house? Okay, most of us don't, didn't know about it. But th this is going through. And there were Republicans and Democrats on both sides of this, so... This isn't, I don't want to get into uh, an argument there. Similar laws as this one that were state laws and city laws, we've kind of gone back and looked at how have they been used. So you could say, well, you're getting really apocalyptic about this. You don't really know how this law is going to be used. Well, there are some states that have already used this law. Massachusetts is one of them. Uh, New York, Illinois, Pennsylvania, the District of Columbia, and California have already used the framework of this law on the state level. So we know how uh, in court this law can be used. So here are a couple of the egregious consequences of this law. All private facilities, whether in a church, Christian school, public school, or anywhere, Dressing rooms, showers, and restrooms would be open to those who believe they are of the opposite sex. And the only way that you would determine whether or not they believe this or not is their own opinion. And you would have no right to challenge that. School children, as they are already in Massachusetts, would be introduced to transgender ide uh, ideology and concepts such as sexual orientation as early as preschool. They're not teaching that it's dysphoria. They're saying it's gender fluidity. So it's not like, hey, listen, kids, if you're going through a hard time, it may, you may have what's called gender dysphoria, and we want to help you with that. No, it's going to be labeled as gender fluidity. So your little preschool child will be told that you can grow up and you can be a man, and you can grow up and you can be a girl. And if you're not sure now, even though probably most four- and five-year-olds haven't been thinking this through yet, you can be whatever you want to be. So if you decide you don't want to be a boy anymore, you can be. So it's basically this. Somebody's got the flu. So we're going to give society the flu 
So that person doesn't feel like they're sick. Okay? Now, I am in 100% think at a school level that if you have a child that is experiencing gender dysphoria, that child needs the, the help and the love and the compassion of a community around it. I am in full agreement with that. But to make it illegal to present to a child in a public school or a Christian school or in a church that God created us male or female is an overreach of our government. Remember that whole thing that they used to argue about separation between church and state? Well, apparently they don't believe that any longer. But let me, let me continue with some of the facts here. Um, biological males would be permitted to compete against women in school, in amateur and professional sports. Say goodbye to all gender-specific sports. If you got a guy who can't compete at a high level and he wants to compete against women, he now has a pathway to totally disrupt that. Faith-based agencies and charities who do work with adoption agencies and homeless shelters would be forced to violate their religious beliefs. State and local sexual orientation and gender identity laws will shut down all faith-based adoption and foster care agencies across the country. This is really crazy. Medical professionals and institutions would be forced to provide drugs, hormones, surgery to those who are suffering from gender dysphoria against their scientific, medical, or conscience-based objections. Doctors would be forced, regardless of whether or not it makes medical school sense or not, to provide hormones for somebody that these hormones are not designed for. And not only that, according to the Equality Act, the United States taxpayer will pay for all these sexual transitions that take place. They will be a part of our insurance policies that we have. 80 to 95% of children with gender dysphoria no longer feel distressed by the time they reach puberty. So 80 to 90% of, of kids who do fall into this, I'm a little confused, or I don't know what I am, or I, you know, by the time they reach puberty, can be on their way out. But according to this law, the, um, let me, the, the American Journal of Bioethics wants to include in this law an article arguing that the state should have the power to overrule the parents of gender dysphoric children who do not consent to giving them um, puberty-blocking drugs. Activists continue to push this protocol of social transition as young as the age of four, puberty-blocking drugs at the age of nine, and cross-sex hormones at the age of 14 and surgery by the age of 18, and at every one of those demarcations, parents cannot object to it. But we're, we're, we're saying, listen, kids, we're going to teach you at the age of five or six. We're going to tell you about something that 80 to 90% of you will outgrow by the time you reach puberty. Oh, by the way, you don't know what puberty is yet either? 
A federal sexual orientation and gender identity law would empower the government to interfere in how regular Americans think, speak, and act at home, at school, at work, or at play. This will apply to churches and will apply to Christian schools and will apply to the requirements of homeschooling. So let me reiterate. No one should be fired or refused housing or opportunity or disenfranchised regardless of their sexuality, whether I agree with it or not. The problem of the law is not the protection it gives the individual, but the infringement it makes upon the rest of society. It is a legal overreach into our civil liberties. Even though God made us male and female, verified by science and common sense, it will become a hate crime to teach it. Gender fluidity is a subjective, non-biological distinction, and gender dysphoria is an emotional and psychological condition. But this new law is saying that since one person has the flu, everybody should have the flu. Now, I know you're sitting here and you're like, dang, I was not expecting this. I mean, he started it with a FedEx commercial. I, I mean, and can I be honest with you? I wasn't expecting it either. I wasn't expecting that there would become a point where my Christian faith, you know, it's, it's not what you're doing in your house, you can do in your house. You know, if you want to get married, get married. I mean, I've been a really good citizen. But it's not where it's stopping. It's like, no, no, pastor. That whole Genesis thing about God created the male and female in his image he created the male. We don't want you saying that anymore. And we're going to make it a hate crime. There's a point when you've got to say, enough is enough. You know? And if, if somehow you have picked that this lacks compassion, what I'm saying, you need to come up to me afterwards. Because, because if you can answer this question, and I'll give it to you. Why can't daddies breastfeed? Okay, let me, I'll just, anybody here know the answer to the question, why can't daddies breastfeed? I think you all know the answer to the question of why daddies can't breastfeed, right? Okay, so for you to look somebody in the face and say that's okay, and you know the answer to the question of why daddies can't breastfeed, you're lying. If compassion is not truthful, then it is a deception. Okay, Christianity was never called to be deceptive. We are called to speak the truth in love. And I will admit, in the United States, we have not always been speaking the truth with love. We have liked being right more than we have liked being loving. The disciples one day were teaching. We're told in the book of Acts, they were preaching Jesus Christ as King and Lord and Savior. And we're told that they were brought before the council and the high priest said to them, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. Do we? 
Are we? Say, so what would be your, what's my role of action? One is bringing awareness to this. I say, let's rewrite that bill. Okay, and, and in that bill, let's rewrite equality uh, and, and for everyone to get housing, to have jobs, nobody should be fired because of, of, of gender dysphoria. I mean, I'm shocked that happens in America. I mean, that's appalling. But our culture dismisses God on the basis of science, which, is, which it really isn't any science. And then it dismisses gender realities, science, based upon civil liberties. You say that's a thinking culture. Oh, when we want to get rid of God, let, let's use science. Oh, uh, our science tells us we're male and female. Let's use civil liberties. Let's get rid of science. So here we are in subjective. Uh, we have gone down the rabbit's hole. And I know if you're here and you're a parent, you're like, you just scared the crap out of me. Now, what we believe has always been challenged. And each generation has, has a line to draw. My grandparents thought that the TV was of the devil. And I remember looking at them and saying, yo, coot, it ain't, what are you, crazy? It ain't of the devil. I don't know. I've been watching Netflix level, lately. It might just be of the devil. They might have just been right. My point is this, each generation has to decide if it's going to allow culture to redefine its Christianity. There's only one Lord, one Jesus, one faith, one hope, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection from the dead. And we gotta decide, are we gonna shut the windows of our faith and let culture do what it's doing, or are we going to pray anyway? I know you probably want me to tell you what the end of the story was for Daniel. The reason why I don't want to tell you the end of the story is because, because we're like, okay, well, that means it's all going to work out perfect for me, and I'll get my job back, and, I, and everything will work out, and the lions won't eat me. Well, the lions didn't eat him, and he got his job back. But that's not how it worked out for every person in the scriptures that stood for the principles of God. And I don't know that that's everything that's going to happen for us but we've got to decide that we're going to pray anyway. We live in a country. We have the opportunity to call our congressmen. We have the opportunity, our congresspeople. We have the right to write letters. We have the power to vote. We have the ability to uprise with decency, with compassion, and with love. And I will even add to this, any one of us who uprise against this 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 law, and yet we do not pray for the gender dysphoria of another human being have missed the gospel. And if we're not willing to get involved and to provide help and care and mentorship or whatever's needed, then we have not done the right job and we haven't done it Christ's way. There is a way for us to object and to do it with decency, intelligence, compassion, and with truth. But lying to people about what we all know is true, you can't call that compassion. Father, as we enter into this place, this is hard for each and every one of us. 
Lord God, I have loved loving you for 30 years of my life, but I think for 30 years I didn't think it was going to cost me anything. But today, you have given us just one example where we must pick up our cross and follow after you. Lord God, whether it's at home, whether it's in our hobbies, whether it's in our friendships, Lord God, whether it's in our society or even in the realm of politics, God, you have told us not to shut the doors of the windows and redefine what Christian is, but you have dared us to pray anyway, to live anyway, to preach truth anyway with compassion and love to train our children in the ways of your word. God, I just thank you that you have given us this revelation and this love. And I pray that that it would start first with me and in my life. That I would first apply this to, to how I think, how I live with my wife and my children and my grandchildren before I try to change everything about everyone else. God, let me be consistent, truthful, and compassionate. Father, today we pray for those who are suffering from sexual identity issues. And Lord God, there are many of us here that are heterosexual, but we don't even have that right. Maybe we've got that out of order. We don't understand what it really means to be a man of God, to be a woman of God, not just heterosexual. So Father, today I surrender my life. We present you this church that we will stand on your truth no matter what it costs us, that we will have an uprising of values based upon your word that we will uprise with your compassion and with your truth. We thank you, Father. Let me invite you to come and to receive the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who paid the ultimate price that we may experience the kingdom of God in our lives.